Um, before we start, I just want to say thank you, Christine. And I want to just explain that um, I, uh, while I was writing this book, both of my parents, who I, are written about in the book, are, I died. And I inherited my mother's dress that she wore on the way to her honeymoon. <laughs> And I've been going to boot camp so I could fit into it because she wore this before she had two children. And there's a picture of her right here. And I am channeling her. I haven't eaten all day. I just want to mention that. And I can't breathe. So if I pass out, it's not just from the fact that I'm so grateful that you all came tonight for this initial book launch. But it's also because I'm hungry. Okay. <laughs> Uh, just like Emmy and I, right? Yeah, exactly. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Annabelle. <laughs> so, reading your latest book, the image that will not get out of my mind is you singing Hava Nagila in a sweat lodge. Yes. <laughs> so, um... Uh, that's one of the stories in the book. You know, the the theme of the book is, uh, as I, well, there's two things I, I like to say about it. One is that sort of, uh, no matter how hard you try to escape your crazy family, you just end up in another crazy family. <laughs> and so it's about the family that I tried to leave behind my crazy family and all the families I've joined accidentally or on purpose. And one of them was this, where that scene takes place, um, uh, was at, at, at a, uh, I accidentally went to a summer camp for adults that I didn't know was like a furry convention. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, everybody was in costume, and I, I, I thought it was like going to be like, volley camp, summer camp, I, I camp, I got this, I went to Jewish camp. But no, it was like everyone was in costume, and uh, and there was a sweat lodge, and we were all supposed to, this is one story, we were all supposed to like sing something, you know, spiritual and I wanted to in that moment um, you know, sing something really cool and mystical and whatever and what it came out was the song I sang at Jewish summer camp, Havana Nagila. But all those hipsters who were now naked um, sang along with me and I just want to make it clear, in that story I say that, you know, after we got out of the sweat lodge, everyone took their clothes off and went swimming in the in the river and I did feel, because it's, it's really really about, you know, tribes and how we join tribes all through our lives. Temporary tribes, some last, you know, our lifetime. Um, that tribe, I really did suddenly feel like I was part of their tribe. I just didn't want to get naked with them because I, I was 25 years older than all of them. And I didn't want them to, I felt like I, I needed them to preserve the few. I didn't want to hurt, you know, it's just too much for them. Like, I just, I couldn't do that. I couldn't inflict this on them. They were all so young. Um, but, you know, the funny thing about that is even that, tribe, that tribe of fairy, you know, this was actually, this was actually in Northern California. I found out later they were all a lot of people who work at, at, at tech companies, you know, who were really into games and cosplay. They had their own food. You know, food is one of the things that de defines a tribe. And it just, 
I, I'm a terrible person because, you know, while we were there, they were just so into the fact that it was vegan and it was all locally grown, uh, kind of. Uh, and you know, the thing was was in the back after you know the, after we'd be in the in the in the in the dining hall, I would look at the back and there would be all those like packaging <laughs> from all the food. It's just that we don't we don't live in a perfect world, but it, you know, it just made me feel so funny that we even that group had a food that defined them and it was definitely um, vegan and I was really hungry after I left not that I'm against veganism but it was just so funny how that even that tribe had its own you know ethos that was expressed through food you were probably expecting the the food of like the old days in that situation yeah like summer camp food yeah. like just a lot of carbs <laughs> just a lot of carbs and and I, I thought I just I, I had just a completely it was like one of those things when expectations meet reality and um, I thought I was coming to like I said a summer camp like like I the, like the camps I had gone to and instead there was like a concert where a guy played the cello and sang a love song to green drinks green drinks <laughs> vegetable juice a love song that was terrifying and there was also a no alcohol policy which I thought what am I doing here <laughs> if I'm at summer camp and I'm an adult this is not right um, luckily someone had some Ambien and I <laughs> just because it was cold and it was, just, you know, it was terrifying Ambien is the breakfast of champions and when you're in the middle of the redwood Woods and you're freezing and you know and you have arthritis and everyone's 25 and they're in costume I needed it that's all I can say I, I definitely needed it so you must be the only Jewish woman in Los Angeles whose idea of the the food that brings you back home involves shellfish. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, in the in the book, I, I in telling the story of the family that I come from, I had a chance to tell my immigrant story, which. Um, you know, when I started writing this book two years ago, I didn't realize hi uh, how how timely it, it might be because I, I feel really strongly about this opportunity that I have to tell this story because it's the story that is. Um, you know, much more um, in, in, I mean, th this is a story of our times right now. How are we going to live in this world where uh, we have this, you know, president with our immigration bans and we, we have people who are uh, not only refugees from uh, every kind of atrocity, but also, you know, in the future, we're going to be looking at um, climate refugees. This is such a big topic. And so this book gave me this chance to tell my my immigrant story, and in in really having the time to examine that story for myself, it made me think about uh, what my responsibility is as a second generation American. And uh, my family are Russian Jews uh, who settled along uh, the Gulf Coast um, in Alabama and in Mississippi. They were fur trappers in Russia. We were uh, definitely not those uh, people who owned banks and that kind of like oh the wealthy. Jew we were. 
uh, uh, fur trappers. And then we came to this country and we were bootleggers and, and, and just, and had dry goods stores like a lot of Jewish families did, but who settled in the north. We were the Shalom Yal tribe. <laughs> and, um, and in fact, when they were in Russia, they kept kosher, but they couldn't do that when they came to the, to, to the Gulf, uh, to the Gulf Coast because there were such delicious shellfish <laughs> that it's a, it would be a Shonda. And um, I was born in Alabama. Everyone thinks I'm a New Yorker. And this, this book gave me, this opportunity with writing this book was for me to look at these, these southern roots. And actually, I went back to Mobile. And um, there's a story in the book about how I inherited some land on a barrier island that I had never seen. And I went down there. And, you know, um, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to launch this book with you, Jonathan, because when I uh, went on this trip and everybody had, my family who's still there had gumbo waiting for me. And that was not even like a thing that uh, they even asked me about. They just knew I would want that. It was waiting for me at my, my cousin Sandy's house when I got there. Just of course. And the minute I ate this food, I just realized that this was part of my bones. That this food was just, I mean, my, this was my, my dad's, uh, it was the thing that made him the most, the happiest in his life. And he would spend uh, days making gumbo. And my mother hated this gumbo because it cost so much money because, um, it, because it never ended. Because it was like, well, you need more, you need lobster tails and you need shrimp and you need the, and the it was just so expensive. And, just, and he made his own roux. And I mean, it was just so, it was so elaborate, but it was, I've been eating this food since I was a kid. And the minute I went down and I had this gumbo and I thought it's just this is this is so beyond you know uh, my sort of like oh I love Indian food or I love and I love I love all kinds of cultural foods but this is the food of my people and um, that's why we're serving it tonight uh, my father would be just my father would be very upset because this was I was going to make this gumbo and I didn't make it because I just it just took me so many days and he, it was just not up to his standards you know, we, but yeah you've been we've been texting back and forth about yep. gumbo this week if I'd known I should come over this afternoon. We could have made it together. Oh, uh, wait! <laughs> Groundhog Day. Me too. Wait a minute. Um, you know, it, it is this crazy thing, though, how food carries memory and is an identifier for you. And and I do write a lot about the food of different uh, families that I have joined, you know, in this book. And I, I just want to say, I just see some friends here. Um, there is a story in the book uh, about that trip that I took down to Alabama that was... it just it changed my life and just uh, touched me in just such deep ways and made me feel um, uh, like the uh, the importance of this time we live in. I happened to strike up a conversation with um, a gentleman who was driving an Uber, uh, my friend Kanis. He's here with his family, the Hawara family, who invited me for dinner. 
and um, they've made a, a Syrian dish for us. And um, you know, I had no idea that there was a, a large and, and beautiful Syrian community uh, so close by. And eating their food and spending time with them made me feel like, oh, well, our stories were so similar, our immigrant stories. And um, I just feel so lucky to uh, to gotten to. Um, to, to, to spend, uh, to, to have a meal with you all. So we're going to have some Syrian food tonight. And sort of one of my ideas of the theme of the book is, you know, go have a dinner with um, someone, so, uh, with, a, with, a, with someone from a culture that you don't know yet. So that's the best way to, to meet people is over a meal, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you you go up to somebody and you start talking to them randomly. Well, maybe not you, but... Oh, I do. <laughs> I, and, I'm a random talker. And they won't... And sometimes you have trouble getting a conversation started. And then you see the same people at a restaurant later in the day, and they're at the next table, and they'll, they'll talk to you for hours. Yeah. Mostly it'll be a pupusos, but they'll talk to you. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's how you get to know people, you know. And I think once you've sat down at a meal with someone, um, that changes your life. And it changes your feeling for how you understand uh their life and where they come from and that's and it, it you know that's that is what actually gumbo is about it's about a little bit of everything um in in one big pot i mean every region has its own gumbo every family has its own gumbo every cook within the family has its own gumbo and though the process seems so sort in a way so lovely and contemplative you know there's the day of gathering stuff and then you sit and you stir for an hour and a half until the until the roux gets exactly the right sort of dark peanut butter color i don't know maybe your dad has a different color he gets it um my dad his gumbo was a different color than this gumbo, right? Mm -hmm. uh, my sister's here. His gumbo was like a, like a, I don't want to say gray, because <laughs> gray does not sound good with food. Mm -hmm. But it was just a different color. It was, but then, then in the, in he, he had all these kind of little life uh, gumbo hacks. Like he, he confessed that he used to add a. Uh, Paul Newman's uh, tomato <laughs> sauce. Like, I'm not sure how that fit in, but um, he just a little crazy. And uh, yeah, that was his that I, was his I, recipe. I mean, some families add Paul Newman's tomato sauce. Some families add raccoon. It, it <laughs> <laughs> well, I when I when I was when I was growing up, I always heard these stories from my dad about his childhood and the Okefenokee swamps and eating um, squirrel on a stick and possum. Oh, yeah, possum. And there was just nothing that he, you know, anything like, you know, it was food. Any moving target was food. And um, his one of his most, his most proud moments was when uh, we took this little road trip, my dad and my mom and I, to the uh, Everglades in Florida because I, I, we ended up growing up in Florida and uh, my, with my son, uh, who's uh, he was about six at the time, and my dad got my son to eat alligator. And you would have thought it was like he had negotiated Middle East peace. It was sort of like it was like he is eating alligator. It was just so happy about that moment. That was like <laughs> yes, a, wi a big win. And then alligator's not bad. It tastes a little like 
slightly mossy pork. I thought it tastes like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> just, just kind of like, kind of like chicken. Yeah, it's, it's it, it, every, everything you eat that you can't quite describe ends up being tastes like chicken. chicken. <laughs> Snake. Or snake, yeah, snake. My dad loved snake. He would just, he just, you know, it's just that. That was that particular time, and you know, in also um, growing up in the swamps and that, uh, just anything, anything moving. I can assure you, though, possum does not taste like chicken. Too gamey, <laughs> a little too gamey. I, I, I judged a uh, chili contest on a military base once, and. I knew that one of the like 65 chilies had possum in it, but I didn't know which one. <laughs> and it felt like playing an extended game of Russian roulette. <laughs> As it turns out, I didn't have to worry. By the time you could tell the possum chili from 10 yards away. <laughs> the smell. Mm. Yeah. Uh. And, and you could say that, oh, yeah, it, smell, it smells stronger than it tastes, but this, in fact, was not the case. <laughs> that, is, that is terrifying. That is just terrifying. We have no, no, no possum is being served this, e- this evening. No possum at all. The squirrel on a six, stick sounds uh, intriguing. I mean, they, they gallop across our yards in these, in these thundering herds. Well, you know, if you go to a state fair, there's anything on a stick. So it's squirrel on a stick. You know, it's, just, it's easy. Anything on it, you know, if you put it on a stick, but fried butter on a stick, very big in the South. Anything with butter. And the thing is, was with my dad, um, some people have memories of their family where it involves things like, oh, I was sitting on his lap and we were studying, you know. Someone. No, my dad, I used to, sit on his lap and eat steak. That was, the, that was like the big family occasion. It was always something involving food. So when you're, think, when, when you're thinking about food and growing up, is steak the first one that comes out or is, it, or is gumbo still the default? Uh, you know, I think gumbo is still the default. But um, I'm going to, I think I will read a little bit about uh, the importance of food in my family, um, and you'll get, you'll get the, you'll get the, the picture. Um, let's see. I just picked out a few food, or just because this theme is uh, food tonight, I picked out a few food-centric things. Okay, so. Um, I'm writing about, uh, this is a chapter about um, when um, my parents were declining in health and I needed to find uh, a place for them to go, a senior home for them to go. Um, My mother wanted to go Jewish and my dad just wanted to go somewhere where they had good food. (laughs) So I'm writing a little bit about what his relationship was to food. Having a sophisticated or at least a satiated palate has always played an essential role in my father's life. Every family story involves a meal or a food group. During World War II, chewing gum was a luxury. 
To stretch the life of his double bubble, Dad would take a worked-over flavorless wad of gum, sprinkle it with sugar, wrap it in wax paper, and freeze it. <laughs> it is unfathomable to imagine an eight-year-old today going to that kind of trouble. <laughs> he also sold this double bubble to his classmates for a tidy profit. <laughs> Stories about his time in the military school in northern, in northern Florida revolve around hunting possum, not kosher, making turtle soup, even less kosher, and eating alligator, don't even ask, in the Okefenokee Swamp. His gumbo recipe, which has not only every kind of shellfish imaginable, but bacon, ham, and pork sausage, is famous in several counties. Our family vacations were planned around food. We went to Boston ostensibly to visit historical sites. Pictures show us walking the Freedom Trail, but I don't remember that at all. The only vivid memory I have of that trip is climbing the narrow, dimly lit staircase leading to the centuries-old dining room of the Durgan Park restaurant where we ordered Flintstone-sized slabs of prime rib. Um, now, I mentioned earlier in the story that my, my dad wanted to go to a place that had the name Club in it because, you know, it had to be an exclusive thing because the only thing he liked more than uh, thick steaks was a, a, an exclusive private club. And the jockey club offered tennis, dockage for yachts, disco dancing, and casual access to the wealthiest locals at the over-the-top Sunday buffets. This was in Miami, Florida. This combination um, to, to the access to the moneyed class and marbled meats was irresistible to my father. A towering presence in his younger days, six foot four and 250-ish pounds, my dad had an insatiable appetite for money and food equally. At the end of each week at the jockey club, the nouveau riche and the faux riche, like us, gathered at the club where the gluten was free-flowing and diners engaged in a competition to see who could raise their cholesterol level quickest. <laughs> I was my father's daughter, buying into his financial alchemy and sharing his passion for movies and meats of all kinds, so Sundays were very special to me as well. Dressed in our matching shiny polyester shirts and bell bottoms, we would load into my dad's copper Mercedes 450 or my mother's powder blue 280 and take the causeway connecting our gated island community in Biscayne Bay to the private drive of the swanky club located a bit further north on the water. And I'm sure that these were some of the happiest moments in his life, at least the ones that didn't involve hookers or poker. <laughs> to this day, I've never seen so much food in one place in my life as I did on those Sunday brunches, table after table of silver platters overflowing with eggs benedict, eggs florentine, sausage, bacon, ham, and lamb. The meats were laid out like the stations of the cross. Manned by a corpulent server in Chef White and Toque Blanc who carved roast beef the size of beach balls. These were the days before veganism displaced hedonism as a preferred ism of the moneyed classes. And patrons gazed rapturously as the beef fat glistened in the Florida sunlight. <laughs> 
The clubbing days are long gone for my parents. Dad's last high-profile venture was the relaunching of the Embers Restaurant, a Miami Beach institution famous for its thick-cut steaks cooked over a fire pit. That restaurant had fallen into disrepair. I had just started college when the renovation was completed, and I flew down and I warbled Shirelle's songs at the reopening night party. Luckily, the acoustics were terrible, and my singing didn't spoil the festivities. <laughs> As with many of his ventures, the business was booming at first, but quickly graft became rampant, and stakes were flying out the back door, and Dad couldn't hold on to staff. Word got to our cousins in Mobile, who knew people who knew Sam the Plumber, a bagman for the mob. Sam DeCavacante was a member of the New Jersey Mafia who did a little moonlighting for mobster Meyer Lansky, who'd retired to Miami. I was home for the holidays when Sam brought a brown paper Winn-Dixie grocery store bag containing $250,000 to our home. <laughs> I stared at it on the kitchen counter, too frightened to peer inside, but tempted by its contents nonetheless. Dad, you should keep it, I advised with an 18-year-old's naive enthusiasm. In hindsight, with the benefit of repeated viewings of Goodfellas, I understand that a bagman collects ill-gotten gains that the mob launders in a way that has nothing to do with washing machines. And there's never just one bag. Plumbing is always a good business to be in. The restaurant went under and became a seedy nightclub. Um, <laughs> It was just so nutty. Uh, my sister is looking like, I cannot believe you wrote that story. <laughs> but uh, there were just, you know, an, a number of these kinds of incidents growing up, which is why I sought out other kinds of families because of our crazy family. But a crazy family does give you something to write about. Endless stories uh, that you get from having a crazy family. Absolutely. Uh, what, what kind of solace did you find in the family of like theater companies when you were growing up that you didn't, weren't finding at home? Oh, that's one of the chapters in the book is about uh, the theater tribe family. Uh, theater tribe family? I guess you can say that. Uh, you know, if you've... The theater... It, everyone in the arts... I mean, any kind of arts group is, I think, uh, a tribe that has its own identity. And theater... What I started out as an actress, and, you know, the, the, your, your school's drama club is just the, the great home for anyone who feels like an outsider and... And uh, they just take you right in, and you just, you know, there's the, but then you've got your, uh, your musical theater people. I was in the, uh, in the very serious drama club, and I'm only able to go out in public today because video didn't exist of my 13-year-old <laughs> performance in Death of a Salesman, <laughs> which I just, it's, it's just terrifying to think that there's someone out there who actually saw me playing Linda Lohman saying, we're free and clear. Free and clear at 13, but you know, thank God, no video exists. Hence, I, I got to actually walk the streets today. I'm not, I'm not a shut-in. <laughs> but that is one of the, that is, you know, that that the, the I do write about these different uh, chapters uh, of um, 
different kinds of families. And actually, I just want to thank um, Alan Buber, who's here tonight, uh, who is uh, uh, has is involved in a story in the book about the secular humanist family, um, which is involves food, of course, because I went to. Uh, see one of these groups, you know, one of these one of these tribes, the secular humanist tribe who meet at the Sunday assembly and I only I was really nervous about the whole thing and I stayed because they had really good coffee. It wasn't like church coffee or synagogue <laughs> coffee. They had an espresso machine. I'm like, okay. I could do this. And like really fabulous guava desserts that day. It was really, it wasn't like the uh, Oneg Shabbats we had at Temple Beth Shalom in Miami Beach, Florida with kind of uh, cook, hard cookies. <laughs> it was really good snacks. And um, through uh, Alan, we, we were doing a service project with our secular humanist family and drinking really good coffee. So again, our our food defines that family, and uh, you hang out with secular humanists. Apparently, you get good coffee. So, yay! Uh, still, I will have I will have nothing bad said about J Jewish bakery cookies. Jewish bakery cookies, especially the ones with the sprinkles. The sprinkle it's a it's a tradition. It is a tradition. You know that you, you know we, that we honor uh, the kind of bad. Bad cookies. It's the it's the t the taste of shortening across the roof of your mouth lets you know that in, in fact there is a deity. Yes, well, who you expresses know, himself in perchance it's part of that you know part of that Jewish suffering that they make you make you live through the cookies. Um, well, I that. That, that brings me to, I think I'll just read one little more passage, maybe, and then passage. I'll read a little bit, and then we'll have questions. But um, it's about, the, about uh, food at the Miami Jewish home where my parents uh, went to live. Um, and and it, this is the day that uh, we, my sister and I, went to check out the home with my parents that they would ultimately live in. And uh, we went for lunch, and we uh, met the residents there, and um, they were very welcoming. Your mother will fit right in here. She'll love it, a bubbly bubby type said. And I'm pimping my mother to the bubbly bubby for 10 minutes mm -hmm. before I notice that she's got on a bib. <laughs> it's a pattern that blends in well with her blouse. Don't look at the bib, I tell myself. Avert your eyes. Don't embarrass her. As I move down the row, I catch the interest of Twinkle Toes, who is the president of the home. And Twink jumps up and does a little jig. I'm 90, and I'm one of the only ones here without a walker. <laughs> we came here with our husbands, but when they passed, we formed a group. We go to the ballet, we go to the concerts, and play cards together. And I'm not sure which part of what she said is the source of her joy. Is it that their husbands have passed? <laughs> or is it that they go to the ballet? And she gestures to a lithe woman who is seated next to her, and she says her husband is still alive, and she points to a man with a grumpy expression seated across the room. He says she nudges her when they eat, so he eats by himself. And now I am certain that this is the right place for my parents. 
The idea that my father can eat a meal far from my mother's haranguing sounds ideal, although I can't imagine what my mother will do as her raison d'etre seems to be giving him a hard time. And I look over the crowd, and with its collegial air, it has a senior hostile vibe. It... <laughs> It's impossible as it is to picture her here. It makes sense. Mom's early life was populated by women who look like these ladies, and the food is just bland enough to be reminiscent of Nanny's cooking. I order a chicken salad, and it's not Le Cirque, but it seems like a small mercy that they have gumbo on the menu, and it's nowhere near as flavorful as my father would prefer, but given the state of my father's and mother's finances, even that this comfort is within reach seems like a miracle. You're going to love my mother, I tell her, leaning in to kiss her cheeks. She's smart and funny, and she's always full of surprises. We already love her. Bubbly Bubby kisses my hand, and I take a seat at my family's table. This is going well, I whisper to my sister. As we hear something in the distance, it sounds like an alarm going off, but as it gets closer, it's unmistakably a human scream. <laughs> a sturdy woman with a build like a tree trunk bursts into the dining room. I noticed her in the hallway walking unassisted and pegged her as a possible buddy for my mother. Help! Help, she screams. They're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. And she's jabbing her index finger in the direction of a soft-faced attendant who's standing by the doorway, arms hanging slackly by her sides. The aide doesn't seem to be in a murderous mood. <laughs> help me, help me, the sturdy woman pleads. Her eyes search the room and meet mine. A shrunken woman, a man, his skin hanging loosely off his slender frame, but dressed in sartorial tweed nonetheless, shakes his fist at her and whines, you've got to stop saying that. Why are you saying that? And a sudden calm comes over her. I wouldn't be saying that if it weren't true. No one is moving towards her. I stand up. Someone has to help her, I whisper under my breath. What if they're trying to kill her? They're all over me. They're crawling all over me. She rushes out of the dining room, screaming and waving her hands in the air, and the diners return their attention to dessert. Are we in some senior living version of Rosemary's Baby? <laughs> they're all in on it, I think. No wonder they're so welcoming. My parents are Mia Farrow's baby. <laughs> and these people are members of Ruth Gordon's coven. And in the distance, I hear some island-accented voices. The aides at the gardens are uniformly Jamaican or Haitian, and they're trying to calm the screamer down, and I realize what everyone else knows. This is not their first time at the rodeo. I'm an idiot. There is a compelling reason that has nothing to do with the ethnic makeup outside the walls of this home for why the campus is ringed by high walls. Well, that's not good timing. I say to no one in particular as I push my food around the plate and I excuse myself to go to the bathroom. Now that my eyes have adjusted to the surroundings, I notice the emergency pull cords that are stationed along the walls. Little scuff marks near the floor moldings. The turning radius of wheelchairs must not be terrific. Or maybe it's the marks from walkers and carts most of the people are pushing. And there is an extremely faint smell of some sort of human excrement. 
and I lock myself into the double-wide bathroom stall, sit, and weep. And when I've collected myself enough to wash up, I see that my mother is drying her hands at the sink, and I have no idea how long she's been standing there. I can really see you here, Mom. You'll be the one screaming, they're trying to kill me in no time at all. And we laugh, and we dab at our eyes. It's a really funny book. I I just have to say... The thing is, you know, there's there's a lot of different kinds of stories in the book, and it it takes you from you know my childhood and growing up with this family to all these different kinds of families, and then it ends with my parents moving into this Jewish home, and in some sense returning to this tribe of theirs, the the Jewish tribe, and. Um, it's a laugh riot, <laughs> but you have to have a sense of humor when you are in, you know, going through these passages in life. I, I truly believe it was a lifesaver. Of course, when my parents moved into the Jewish home, my dad got in trouble because he just refused. He was smuggling bacon into the cafeteria, in the kosher cafeteria. He just could not accept that he couldn't have bacon with his eggs in the morning. So. A sensible man. A sensible man. Um, shall we take some questions? If there are any questions. Well, yes. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, for this um, book, one of the great things about a book tour is uh, you get to see a lot of friends along the way. Uh, but I try to always meet up with friends t- to do events. And because I've been really, actually, and it was Alan who got me involved with the um, Military Association of Atheists and Freethinkers, and I started lending my name and support to that organization when we did a service project together where we sent, and I write about this in the book, we sent um, holiday packages to people who are serving in the military who are unaffiliated. And, um, you know, uh, when we did this together, I, when I met you, Alan, at doing this activity, I had no idea how marginalized you could be if you were um, part of the uh, secular humanist tribe when you are in the government and when you are doing something like serving in the military. And I ended up calling people who are in active service at bases all over the world to see, well, what does this mean to you? And they were so appreciative of the packages that were sent that I I just got very uh, interested in all of the kinds of uh, groups that have formed around the secular uh, humanist community because I, I, I'm a Jewish person but I'm also an atheist so uh, I, I'm right there with those people and so I've gotten involved with the Dawkins uh, Foundation and with the Center of Inquiry and so uh, Richard Dawkins and I are going to be doing a bunch of events on his North American tour, we're going to Toronto we're going to Boulder so he's I consider that, um, them one of my, my tribes so uh, one of my events is with Julia Sweeney she's from my comedy tribe Jonathan's from my food tribe you know, so just try to mix it up and make sure that there'll be at least one person at every stop who I will know and I can drink with afterwards. <laughs> and um, Richard's a really fun guy. Yeah, so that, and you can read about the Secular Humanist Tribe and their search to try to replace the song Imagine as our anthem. People are really tired of that. <laughs> would you, would you, we sing that all, at every, every meetup and it's just getting a little old. <laughs> 
I can imagine. <laughs> and that, yes? I was wondering what your parents' attitude about moving into the home was both before and after they moved in. And was there any uh, thought, either on their part or yours, of moving them into your home? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, that's where do we start with that? You'll have to, uh, you know, um, oh, that's such a hard passage in life. You know, I don't know that anyone ever really says, I'm just dying to go to the home. Um, I don't know that that ever happens. Um, but, you know, having just lived through this, uh, it was really profound and moving experience and involved a lot of complaining. And uh, there was just no end of complaining. But there were also these beautiful moments. Uh, my parents had such a hard time uh, adjusting, and I write about this in the book, that I spent a lot of time there and became a part-time resident. <laughs> And we went to poetry class together, and I went to the chair exercise. There was a lot of community, and I, um, I feel uh, just a tremendous amount of love. I'm about to go down there and visit. I feel like they're my family. I, I love. I've just my parents found a community there, uh, who, who also complained about it too. Um, so there's no end of complaining, but there was really something quite amazing about the tribe that you can make when you go through this this you know this 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 last stop in your in your life and i feel very bonded to those people and in terms of moving to my i did think about having them move in and i just didn't know who would survive it who would go first them or me um but it was just you know at a certain point this is one of the things that that i'm writing about in the book is how we i i read yuval harari's book sapiens and i was really inspired by that book to write this book and that's really about how we have the same brain we had 70,000 years ago as Homo sapiens, but we don't live in the way that we really need to be living in communities, you know, uh, extended families. And then we find ourselves across the country from our, fa from our, you know, our elders. And then what do we do? It was really too late. By the time we needed them to come live with us, it was too late for them to move across. And, you know, it just it doesn't, we, we, we've set up a life, a modern life that doesn't really support what we need as humans. And so we make, you know, temporary tribes. We make uh, all kinds of uh, accommodations for that. But um, I was very inspired by that book. To, and that's really why I, I, I wrote this book, um, because it, it doesn't really it doesn't really work in a lot of ways. And, and I think we see that now also in terms of how are we going to move forward just as we move ahead in this country and across the world. What are, what are we gonna, how are we going to welcome people or are we going to just make more walls and make more travel bans? And, and I, I really think that that is at the heart of that issue of who, who, is, your, who is your family? Is it just your parents so or is it everyone? And, and I, I, I I'm, I'm voting for everyone, but um, where, where do we stop with that? Where do we, st that's, a, you know, that's, that was a long answer. <laughs> Are there any other questions? Yes, <laughs> uh, yes. Were the parents able to read any of the books before they passed? You know, it, um, it's funny, uh, I had a deal with my mother that I wouldn't write this book until she was gone. 
And then she got a diagnosis a couple years ago of having stage four breast cancer. So I thought, okay, I'll start writing. Because I, I wanted to write this book. A lot of this book is also about the uh, American dream of getting rich, which was my dad's dream. And I thought, this is a timely story of, you know, this idea of being wealthy in America. And so I started writing, and, and she really she really made her really unhappy. She just did not want me to write this book. But then we sort of became a joke. I was like, Mom, you're not living up to your bargain. You were given six months to live, and now two years have gone by. I'm going to keep writing. You know? So it was always a joke. And then she would tell me, me these stories and my dad actually said to me um, if there's money in it you should write it <laughs> so um, he was okay with it and uh, and then um, they both started declining. It was this crazy thing, and where I was thinking, what's going to happen first? Is this book going to come out? Are they? And neither of them have lived to see this book, but they knew about it. And um, in the end, my mom, she was—I I think she was kind of on board with it. What she said to me was, "I got to. Sh she lived long enough that I could show her the book cover, and she said, "What? I cannot believe someone is publishing a book with my picture on it." Do you know these people? <laughs> oh, wait, well, what was the word she used? It was a really crazy word. It, what was the word she used? I asked my sister. Something about, like, is this some kind of boondoggle? I mean, it was, it was this really funny word. I can't even um, remember the word she used, but, you know, uh, I, I, it was, it was a. It's a little strange that uh, that, and then I kept editing it, and then the sicker they got, the more sort of stories about the philandering and the illegal activity I got to put in. <laughs> it was this really crazy thing of which whose clock was going to run out, my deadline, or my parents, and you know, uh, ultimately, um, you know, I. That's why I'm wearing my mom's dress. Uh, yeah, so it's just a. A nutty thing that happened. Uh, I, I expected them to actually live to see this book. Um, I did. That's happy thought. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to tell one story that I left out. Okay. <laughs> okay, there was one story I left out that I, uh, uh, there's lots of stories I left out, but uh, there's one, just sort of like the crazy thing about what, you know, and the reason why I tell these stories is, and I just want to say, I tell these stories uh, because I think it's really important to not have, um, I think secrets hold you back and keep you personal. So, my mom lost a diamond ring and and so they collected the insurance money for the diamond ring and then she found the diamond ring and then my dad didn't want to get the money back and my sister and I kept sort of telling him they had to give the money back I'm going to end on this story and um, my sister said to me so do you think dad doesn't know the right address to reach the insurance? I said, no, he's not giving that money back. Lisa. So then I went and stole the diamond ring <laughs> from them because I didn't want him to fence the ring and then have it traced back to the insurance money. And now I still have that diamond ring. And I, I 
am just a little torn. Like I feel like I should get it appraised and see if I could collect more before I get the, because this is in my genes. There's crime in my genes. And I feel I need to uh, get to see who is going to give me the best price. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's not in the book. And that's not, so you can't have that, you can't repeat that story because it's illegal. Well, the statute of limitations has undoubtedly run out. No, that was a year ago. Oh! <laughs> no, this is recent. This is really recent. And, um, but that's the way that, that sort of like the, you know, the epigenetics of things. And so I have crime in my genes. Um, is there, we'll take one more last question and then let's have some wine and some more and we have some Syrian food and I know how to pronounce it Kanas, how do I pronounce what you guys have made uh, what, what have you made what, what, what have you got for us okay and that's the lentils and the onions and is that what yeah, yeah okay so we've got we've got wine and we've got Majara I can't pronounce right Majara Okay, and so we've got some more, but I'll sign some books, but was there one more question? I'll have one more question. No? Yes? Yeah, so I'm curious about, I read a piece that you wrote on, on LA Times recently about a cousin that didn't want to be named in the book, and you had to take a picture off the cover and stuff. Can you mm-hmm. tell that story? Uh, I'll tell that story. So, um, what says more that you come from a crazy family than finding out that someone in your crazy family doesn't want to be pictured with your crazy family. So one of the people on this book cover was born in the Penguin Random House book art book <laughs> department. The rest of us were born in, in uh, Delaware and Alabama. Um, and uh, the thing is, uh, my cousin Monique has is estranged from the family, and um, it became this this funny thing, this this idea of like, uh, who is this face? And so I, I wrote about this idea of this new person in our family. <laughs> and um, what's kind of great though is that you know. I, I thought I was writing a book about wanting to leave my family and join other families, and my cousin Monique actually succeeded in that. She's the one who actually left our family and has made her her own identity. And uh, I just love the idea that you know we come from this generation of of you know second generation Americans. None of us are Monique, and my her her my other cousins and I, we've, we've named her Monique, and now we have a new, a new member in our family, uh, born on Hudson, downtown in Tribeca, in the Penguin Random House book cover art. And I actually looked for that face. I looked to see if that face was like in one of, you know, you can, you can purchase faces, you know, which is such a strange thing if you ever go on the internet and you look for this in the, you know, and I looked for like depressed Jewish women. <laughs> But they were all on the Holocaust and didn't fit. Not in a Holocaust center, I just want to make that clear. Um, or I looked for, like, sad woman. I, look, I mean, you can buy all these kinds of faces, but I didn't find Monique anywhere. And she has a very, uh, I, you, you, can pick, you can figure out which one she is. She has a very Mona Lisa gaze. And I wonder what she knows about my family that I never found out. 
That's really the mystery. Uh, so thank you all so much for coming. We'll have some wine. We'll have some food. I'll sign some books. And... You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.